Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. For the last five years, Jeremy Cox and Naomi Lyons have been building an online catalog raisonné of American artist Frederick Sommer, 1905 to 1999, whose work explored an unusually broad array of subjects, ranging from disorienting landscapes and macabre aspects of the natural world to surreal arrangements of found objects and virtual abstractions. Ksenia Gerstein created the exhibition A World of Bonds, Frederick Sommer's Photography and Friendships, on view at the National Gallery of Art from June 16th through August 4th, 2014. Drawn largely from the gallery's collection, which includes significant works given by the artist himself in 1995, the exhibition showcased not only the beauty and diversity of Sommer's striking images, but put them in dialogue with the work of artist friends who helped shape his vision. As a supplement to this temporary on-site exhibition, Gerstein created a scholarly digital introduction to Sommer and his 35 photographs in the collection as a permanent feature of the gallery's website. In this lecture, recorded on March 31, 2014, as part of the gallery's Works in Progress lecture series, Lyons, Cox, and Gerstein reflect on their reasons for and experiences with using digital formats to produce scholarship, considering ways in which they influence the knowledge available about a given artist, open up new ways of approaching and conveying a particular artist's sensibility, and affect our experience of analog art. As those of you who work at the gallery probably know, last year I had the opportunity um, to curate an exhibition in one of the um, photography galleries in the West Building of the work of Frederick Sommer, which was the beginning of what brings us here today. And um, that happened because in 1995, the National Gallery received a really remarkable gift of work from Frederick Sommer. It was uh, over 50 works, 33 photographs, and it was based on this that the show was conceived and gave an overview of sort of the highlights of our holdings and also put Sommer's work in dialogue with some of his friends. He had an interesting biography, which we can talk a bit more about later, but he was born in Europe, moved as a child uh, to Brazil, and um, traveled in between, and in 1935 settled in Prescott, Arizona, um, because he had been diagnosed with tuberculosis and needed to live in that climate. And he was living in this rather remote place, but managed to maintain friendships with a great number of people far beyond um, Arizona. And so the show was partly about that, but also highlighted these beautiful works. This is one. This is from his earliest series. This is one of the kind of assemblages he put together and photographed these wonderfully surrealist works. Um, For the show, we had to borrow his wonderful portrait of Max Ernst, but I'm very pleased to report that since then, the gallery has acquired a print, so this is now in our collection as well. Um, This is one of the somewhat later works where he's also collaging things, but in a way that makes it almost invisible. And these are two, this... And this are two of his later works where he's really experimenting with how you can make a negative. This is not from a a traditional negative and how, you know, what you can do to create a photograph. Um, And I was very fortunate, and this is one of the very late collages that he did late in life when he couldn't really work in the darkroom anymore. Um, I was really fortunate that at the time when I was working on the show, the gallery was also transitioning to its new website, and John Gordy is here, a big shout out to him, and, you know, that it seemed like there is a real push towards digital, and so uh, after the show, I was also able to do a feature 
on uh, Frederick Selmer's work in the collection. Um, I think the, what, the, what the gallery can do with its features is getting more elaborate every day. This could have been much more elaborate. But this allowed me to um, encapsulate for posterity in digital form a lot of the ideas that this show had and also really share with the world, should anybody be interested, all the research that went into it. You know, it has bibliography and all these images. Um, and it was in the process of working on the feature that... I really got to talk a lot with Naomi and Jeremy, who are the co-trustees of the Frederick Sommer Foundation, and who, um, sorry, let me just do this, um, and who have been really wonderfully generous with sharing information, with sharing images, with helping me think about how to present all of this and to get across uh, who Frederick Sommer was, both as an artist, as a person. And in talking to them, I learned that they're working on a digital catalog raisonné of Frederick Sommer's work, and so it seemed very productive at a time when the gallery is doing more digital stuff. And when they're working on this project, to have this public conversation and to think about how a foundation dedicated to the work of a single artist um, goes about this very complicated mission. So um, with all of that said... Um, I'm going to give Naomi and Jeremy's bio so you have a better sense of who they are and then hand it over, hand the podium over to Jeremy so he can show you around the website and then we'll have a little conversation and hopefully some time uh, for a Q&A at the end. Um, Naomi, Naomi Lyons, spent her formative years on the island of Martha's Vineyard and received a BA in biology in 1980 from Holland's College. After college, she worked in the genetics laboratory of Thomas Klein at Princeton University. Her time at Princeton renewed Naomi's longtime interest in photography as the perfect language to blend her fundamental interest in science and art. She was invited to sit in on Peter Bunnell's courses on the history of photography and Emmett Gowan's courses on the practice of photography, and it's worth noting that uh, Frederick Sommer was very influential on Emmett Gowan. Naomi first met Frederick Sommer in December of, 19, no, in December of 1983 when he came to Princeton and gave a public talk there. In May of 1985, Sommer invited Naomi to move to Prescott and work with him as his darkroom assistant. In 1993, when forming the Frederick and Francis Sommer Foundation, he requested that Naomi serve as a trustee, which she has continued to do until the present. And Jeremy was born in Arizona and spent most of his formative years in the Prescott area. He became inter interested in photography during high school and continued to study photography afterwards. He first met Naomi in 1990 during a classroom show and talk on Sommer and was uh, later that year introduced to the artist himself. Jeremy worked at first as a part-time and then um, as a full-time assistant to Sommer for most of the 1990s, and he joined the Sommer Foundation Board of Trustees in 2002. So with that, I'll hand over the podium to Jeremy and get you acquainted with the digital initiative in question. Much easier the second time. <laughs> I'm just going to give a couple quick visuals uh, be, so that you have something in, uh, in mind as we talk through these things later. Does it go to the home? I don't know. There it goes. Uh, we did the, Frederick Sommer died in 1999, and afterwards there was uh, information that, archival information that became available. We wanted to do the book in anticipation of 
the centenary of his birth for 2005. We were doing a lot of really fun and good research doing, while doing the book, and it made sense to do the website at the same time while all that information was fresh in our mind and we were organizing it. <clears throat> Most of us will be introduced to a piece of artwork uh, in generations past in a book. Many people will be introduced to a piece of artwork digitally these days. Um, the website was organized really with two tiers in mind, just as a kind of a cursory introduction whereby people can go to the galleries they can see a variety of images within the galleries and a variety of Fred's the different working media that he did as and as subject matter. As we've progressed, we are faced with wanting to document art objects and that and we're trying to define what, how big is Fred's body of work? Because that's a question we get. How many of these are there? How many of, the, of this is there? And so that's led naturally to a catalog resume type of thinking. Uh, the publishing world is moving away from hardbounds because in the catalog resume, because it's a very small audience with a very high production costs. And they're moving towards digital and as an artist endowed foundation we have a certain critical mass that might make it easier for us in theory to accomplish than an institution having to come in and do the research in a different way and that brings us to the catalog resume section Let's see if the click works there we are and what we're starting with is, I will uncheck this so that you can see the other medium. Let's go back to see if this freshens. Oh, it may not refresh. Um, we have, there we go. Because we're not, because we're private individuals doing this and not an institution, we don't quite have either the training would be one way of saying it. We don't have quite the restrictions we can really customize this to terminology that relates to Fred to help frame that story around him. And so we've got the mediums, and then underneath, these genres are very specific to Fred. Uh, I have a very difficult time figuring out how to categorize Fred in, a, in traditional museum format words. You know, for example, where do assemblage go? Are they, you know, are they... Let's get that there. So I'm hoping that people will be able to come and do lots of searches in pretty much any way that they want. Today I'm using flower and frog as the example. What we hope is that you will be able to see title variations because artists will often change titles. Fred did. He felt the title was worth twice as much as the image. Different dates that the artist may have ascribed to it. There will be a list of collections that it's in, so if there happens to be one near you, you can go see that real object. Um, an exhibition history to s put it in context, how often it may or may not have been seen, and in this case, you know, other, an indication of how many works Fred may have made in his lifetime. 
by clicking on the image itself. We wanted, because we're, most of us are going to see artwork digitally for the first time remotely, I wanted you to be able to really, really look at it. For example, we, when eventually we have high resolutions of all of these things, I want you to be able to come in and see that Fred actually scratched the negative with an etching tool to create this little feature down here to the point that in some places he actually removed the entire emulsion, giving it a different sense of black when it's printed from the other tones. And he carried that up into the image. And then if you bring it over by this, he even worked on the B a little bit, gave it a little extra circle up in here. And this oak ball that forms the frog's head, you can see that he's done quite a bit of work on these cracked open petals. And so that's just a kind of a framework of what we want you to be able to see, the depth with which we want you to be able to see it. As a document, in a scholarly way, I like color bars and I like scale because it tells me how big something is. And this is the verso of that print. So it shows me how Fred signed it, how it was treated, any indications. Sometimes there are gallery markings, museum markings on the back. All these things help with us um, down the road on our research. All right, well, so now hopefully mm -hmm. that everybody has been introduced and has a sense of what the catalog raisonné looks like, what it's about. Um, I wanted to ask Jeremy and Naomi some more questions about why it is, what it is, how it came to be. And I guess my first question is um, whether you received any guidance from Fred before his passing in 1999 about how he wanted his legacy interpreted and why you ultimately you know, chose this particular format, and you already began to address that. Um, but what was appealing about this format for the digital catalog raisonné? The appeal of the digital is that it's flexible. I get to work on this project as a work in progress, that it's, um, it doesn't have quite the pressure of arriving in print form as authoritative. And so it's more scholarly an evolution than a publication form. That, and that's a digital appeal to me. Fred didn't give a lot of, he didn't give me a lot of guidance about how to frame his artwork conceptually after he died. He, of course, um, I worked with Fred in the darkroom and uh, in cooking in the kitchen. His influence was uh, profound and extensive, and it was very, very difficult to ignore. Uh, or I, it was also really rich. Um, so color, sensitivity to tone, sensitivity to dilating of your eyes was something he took very, very seriously. He edited his work uh, very, very seriously right to the end of his life, and so uh, he took uh, that responsibility. But the fact that the world would change uh, and that the way information is stored and given to each other would change, he knew intuitively, and he said, go to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
can you, um, you mentioned editing, so I'm wondering, uh, can you talk a little bit more uh, about the process of editing, the, you know, thinking about the body of work and editing by necessity for purposes of creating the um, site? We start with uh, the dichotomy of the aesthetic presentation, which would be the one on the left, versus the object presentation, which would be the one on the right. A lot of people can't get past the clutter of seeing things. They, or it's maybe better to present it aesthetically as an art object first and let somebody come to study it as an object second. And so how I photograph it is one of the first things I have to decide. The database is set up because of photography and multiples in some cases, not all. I have it tracked for both individual objects and as common titles. Uh, there is a mass of information I'm looking for so that I can start to discern some patterns where Fred signed things, whether it was initialed, dated, titled, or not. In some cases, the dimensions of the mats over different decades will help me identify when prints were possibly made, the way he signed it, the density of that pencil, uh, hence why I showed you the back of the image earlier. I want to collect publication histories of individual objects when we know it, and the in this case, this is at the Norton Simon Museum. It was acquired directly from Fred, and it was exhibited in 2006 at the Norton Simon in a recent exhibition. And then, of course, there's um, any research project has a series of notes. Some of them require a lot of discretion. I have collectors who will only give me their last name. I have dealers who won't give me collectors' names, and so, some things are reference. Some things need follow-up. In this particular case, there's an image that's reproduced in the book at the Norton Simon, and it's upside down from what I traditionally know it. So the notation is there to contact them, take it out of the frame, and see if Fred signed it. And if he, if he did, is it in this inverse orientation as I know it? Is it an alternate presentation? And that, so that kind of research needs to be followed up. There is the movement of collections. Things that as they move through private individuals, give things to museums or send them to auction for various reasons. And I mean, you guys have some beautiful things here that have a very long history of transition. Also, I need to eventually be able to make note of variations the way Fred gave it a treatment different over time. The one on the right is an earlier example where he rendered it in a tighter version. Later, as he worked on things, it may have blossomed out to be more of the negative. Fred believed in the integrity of the negative as a whole and always tried to resolve it. Sometimes that took a couple of decades to work out. And I'm also tracking publications. Uh, the publications, and this is a lead-in, the publications will be an ongoing bibliography of whatever includes Fred. But this summer, 
uh, Fred has a collection of 2,500 books in multiple languages, German, French, uh, English. Portuguese, Italian. Portuguese, Italian, some Chinese, Japanese. Japanese. Chinese. Uh, he was, if it was beautiful, he was willing. He didn't need to be able to read. He could, however, speak those, speak and read those five languages that we started with. So the database is going to have, a, like I said, an ongoing bibliography. It will have a subsection searchable by what was in Fred's library. And then within that, Naomi's been studying the library to see, to document some of the ephemera elements that show Fred interacting with his library so that we can grasp some of the framework thought or the author references that he was finding an affiliation with. So I'm going to, I already introduced this and this, and so I'm gonna bring us up to the books. And we have a book that Fred had with him when he was diagnosed with tuber tuberculosis. So he had this book for over 60 years. And he brought it back from Switzerland uh, with him, uh, did not immediately move to Prescott, so he carried it across the country, was in Tucson, and then brought it up to Prescott. Um, Fred used books as his uh, seed catalog, in a sense, as his potential. Uh, and uh, because it's, he told me the problem with Prescott, Arizona is it's founded on cowboy logic. And uh, that's, that was not rich enough for him. And so he, he used his books to keep his intellect, as an intellectual uh, group of friends. Ksenia's show was about his actual friends, his human friends, his artistic friends. But the books are really his uh, playmates. In fact, he called it his grab bag of antecedents. Uh, we all have grab bags, and we should be sticking our hands in them more often possibly than we do. Um, my project right now is going through the books and seeing the evidence that Fred left in them, whether it be paper markers or a pencil mark, uh, whether it's an insert, whether it's an insert. Um, and in this case, Fred had, um, again, this is a book that he had at a time of his, when he's diagnosed with tuberculosis, he's faced with his own mortality. And here, 70 years later, upon the death of Aaron Siskind, he gets this notice in the mail, and he eventually, he had it on the table for a couple of days. Yeah, Aaron was very, very important to Fred. Their friendship was uh, one of great humor and uh, real playmates. Um, uh, if it's automatic, it's already there. That was something that he and Aaron came up with. Right, I think uh, uh, the, con the context for that was that they were out shooting together in Arizona, and I think um, Aaron Siskind was actually using his camera to shoot photographs, where, whereas um, And you know Sommer, the one in Jerome with the peeled paint that's so famous, that vertical of Aaron Siskind. Fred is taking a nap in Aaron's car. Fred never drove. And so he, he comes back, and Fred holds up a negative from the old hospital, and he says, look, my film's already developed. <laughs> Found negative. But in this case, this note disappeared, and then it wasn't until we were going through the library that Naomi found where Fred placed it. These, this is obviously in German, 
And this is an example of Fred marking very specific passages that he's considering. It's the same book that the Aaron Siskin is. We're documenting the covers so that it, it, gives, a, it gives the bibliophile a sense of when something was published, the character of it. This is an example of uh, Voyage of the Beagle, of which Fred had multiple copies. Yeah, Fred has three copies, and all three copies have this little piece of paper on the chapter of him sailing into Rio. This is an example. Um, the long number is simply, Fred's library was maintained in the order it was when he died, so that those relationships are Fred preserved. had a very interesting way of approaching his library. He put books of the same size together rather than the same subject matter. And so, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I did this was structural integrity so that there, his books don't lean and, and, and fold on each other, but also because he was interested in using it as a koan to clear his mind sometimes, but also to find things that are related. He told me books are of the same size because something gave those authors or the publishers a clue that the book should be this size as opposed to this size. And so it relates people in a graphic way, in a, in a proportionate way, uh, so that uh, on his shelf he'll have wave theory or a, a great physicist will be next to Picasso or next to Max Ernst. Um, uh, or Crivelli or Bruno. I mean, he, the books are kind of amazing. And they're, they cover philosophy, travel, cook. There's cookbooks, there's sculpture, there's painting. Uh, it's, there's a couple of fiction. There's Finnegan's Wake. There's, so it's, it's very diverse. Uh, in this example at the top, that page 41 is Fred's marking. So this is a second example where he's giving himself a clue. And then inside, he's come in with a straight edge and marked specific passage. He didn't do this with all of his books. There's a very small number of it, so they should be clues eventually as to really where his mind was working on. And the idea is for other people to explore it, right, and find mm. what they find. That was very important to Fred. He didn't define himself as much as he wanted people to see, like the help of many things. He was very, very open to influence uh, the Spinoza book is also one that he had with him when he was diagnosed in Rio de Janeiro with tuberculosis. So this is another book that he's kept for 60 years. Uh, and Fred cited <clears throat> a book later, American Art. I need to be more precise about we that. Do. But, um, you know, the National Gallery is coming into play in 1941. There's a book called American Art that Fred found the introduction to, to be very uh, welcoming to broad thinking about making art in America. And so some of these examples will help us understand the genesis of his thinking. There are also some ephemera things. I believe this is a list of photo objects that went to the Museum of Modern Art in the 1940s but in the digital to analog theme, it's a lot easier for me to send this JPEG to a curator there and have them cross-reference it than it is for me to get there. And it may eventually be deciphered why Fred put it in with French poetry. Uh, one of the things that um, Fred really felt very strongly about was to have books of favorite uh, artists and images that had 
different reproductions of the same image. Uh, this is an example of where he had a very old book with black and white uh, reproductions, and he would received in the mail a blat from a publisher and of a beautiful color reproduction, and so he very carefully cut it out and taped it in so that it's only taped on one side so that you can actually open it and pull the one away from the other and then put it back. You don't see them side by side, but you actually reveal the old and then bring the new on top of it. And we're hoping that by documenting some of these things, bringing them in JPEG form, searchable into the database, that curators like Ksenia will be able to postulate a theory, the, the written idea, the visual engagements, and ponder how that may have come to play in what Fred made himself. Well, actually, if I, if I can follow up on that, um, the book, which we've already mentioned, is this remarkable um, volume of scholarship, but it has a very strong narrative to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, as I'm sitting here looking at this, um, I'm wondering how you guys are thinking about the user's experience. You know, here you're also collecting, I think, scholarship and quantities of information far beyond what could fit in a book. And there's a kind of wonderful quality which seems to really be in keeping with Summer's sensibility that, you know, you can sort of skip read, which was this technique he practiced, maybe Naomi can explain it, of uh, you know, picking out words out of an existing mm -hmm. text and making something new out of it. It seems really wonderful to be able to have access to so much information, right, and to pick and choose as you want. But I'm wondering if, if you have other thoughts about what the user's experience is going to be, who your audience is going to be, um, and whether you feel the need to guide them in any way through the information. The basic, the, the introduction website is meant to be a survey, to give an overall uh, sense of it to somebody who's not familiar with Fred, kind of that K through 12 type thing. The catalog resume is meant for individuals who are looking for that next layer of understanding an artist, seeing an arc, uh, they want to whether they want to search for all the chicken part pictures or they want to see everything that was made within a decade in all media. I want it to be searchable by those forms. And that's a little more of a engaged and advanced user who's knows the terminology, may understand some of the processes. Well, and Fred edited the chicken part pictures. He also numbered the negatives of the chicken part pictures. Edward Weston was a huge influence on Fred photographically, uh, also a friendship, but, but, and Edward, of course, had this wonderful system of, of labeling mm -hmm. his negatives uh, in numbered sequence, but then also identifying their genre. And Fred sort of took that <coughs> as, a, as a challenge when he first started the series of chicken parts. Um, a lot of those negatives no longer exist. We are including in any image that uh, exists in print form that we've found in the resume, um, a curator might go and say, oh, I want to do a show of all chicken part pictures. Um, then they will be confronted with the reality of finding all of the chicken part pictures in print form because some of these that are in the resume, we only know of one print. 
Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, I don't feel like I have to emphasize that because anybody who's then going to take this information and try to realize it will be confronted with, if they don't call me, because I'd be happy to tell them mm-hmm. that this is going to be a difficult project. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then they'll, that, that will take care, reality will take care of itself. Do you, and, do you know what I mean? We but have. in the resume, it will allow you to explore the imagination. How far did this guy go with this idea? And it's like he went really, really far. Um, and when I was working with him in the 80s, we had a chicken farm outside of town, Young's Farm, and we could go and get unfrozen chickens on butcher day. And we went out there, and I said to him, Fred, we should ask and see if we can get some chicken parts. And they told us that because of liability... They couldn't hand us anything except for what is deemed edible. And we were like, whoa, because he, of course, got these from the butcher when he was, uh, and the man said he just, the butcher told Fred later, he assumed he was using it as bait to go fishing. So the shift in time, you know, is so interesting. We have two slides left of just the books. Um, This is a more traditional bibliophile type thing, shows artist friendship relations and inscriptions. And then uh, for me, I'm trying to document how each, each art object is represented in publication. This gives me time frames that sometimes something was published by, by a certain time that it was seen and appreciated, whether it was cropped or rendered differently, and in whose hands it was, whether it was a collection or a museum show at a time. So these things all kind of help us get a critical mass of information to understand something. And that's the end of those slides. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think um, we are at 1.45, and I think I want to open the floor to discussion if people have questions about the Catalog Raisonne project or anything else summer-related, now's your, now's your chance to ask. We do extemporaneously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Adam. How complete is the, this Catalog Raisonne? Like, I think you just said... Half of Fred's work is already in public institutions. So I estimate that there will be 2,000 objects. I think it will be somewhat akin to the O'Keeffe catalog resume. Um, The real challenge is, I probably have data entry on three quarters of it. The real challenge is going to be getting quality renderings, JPEGs of a lot of things. Uh, When, for example, the samples from the National Gallery I have were from a cell phone in 2004. Those are the visual references I have. When Ksenia did her project, I then went back and noticed that the National Gallery is upgraded, so I know I can now ask or at least reference better JPEGs. That's going to be the biggest challenge. Also, the correspondence that's going to be required to connect with private collectors of works that have passed through dealers or auction houses. Those are the most difficult ones. Um, It's got to be the real advantage of the digital, right? Because in a sense, it's never committed to into stone. And so that we can keep adding um, when things are revealed. 
Can you give us a sense of the time frame of how long has it taken so far and how much longer you think it will take to get to a place where... It's almost like the software, mastering it and figuring it out has taken longer than dealing with people yeah. <laughs> and institutions that hold his work. Fred started work at 10-ish. In Had the breakfast, <laughs> a nap, did some stuff, and then he had lunch, and then he did... <laughs> a nap and did stuff. <laughs> and so he did not uh, leave instructions that I had to work diligently for 10 hours a day. So I don't have a <laughs> hard timeline. It's more, the, the challenge is more in communication and gathering uh, good JPEGs than it is about data entry. But we feel we have a really good chance because he edited his work. And so um, there's not tons and tons and tons out there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I will actually, eventually I'll have to deal with all of them. In 2003, 2004, when we were preparing the book and working towards Fred's uh, centenary of his birth, we contacted every institution that I could find that had Fred's work. And that was the kind of the basis for a lot of this information. They were, you know, they'd do a little printout at that point in time. I have a stack of eight and a half by 11 sheets of everyone's collection material. And um, we had 13 exhibits that year. And yes, I will be coming back. For example, the National Gallery acquired the Max Ernst this year. They did not acquire that from me. I happened to have, I believe I know who the seller is because she wrote to me, email, sent a JPEG, asked some questions. But I don't have confirmation of that because I need to now go back and connect the dots by connecting with the National Gallery. I know the dealer that they may or may not have worked with, you know, and that kind of connect those triangles. It is kind of interesting that the marketplace wants a certain amount of information. How many prints, how many are in private collections, how many in public collections, where the more scholarly, the museums, they want to know how things are made, what's, you know, where... Where is it in his body of work? Is it connected to something in his I, philosophy? I, I absolutely want to work with the institutions. The Norton Simon is a fantastic collection that all came together in one little chunk. They've got 30 pieces. They were framed then. They've never been unframed. And so there are some clues as to Matt Dimension's signature style and titling that the difficulty I run into is they don't want to unframe it. Um, which even, we completely understand. Even at SF MoMA, uh, they have some vintage works that are just in corners. I mean, I, I made an appointment. I drive to San Francisco telling them I want to see the back of everything. And I get there, and they're like, you want to see the back of everything? And I'm like, yeah, I need to cut the corners. And they're like, well, we need to have a conservator here to do that. And it's like, I'm here. I'll be waiting. So, so there's a lot of interactions with that. Anybody else? <laughs> Adam, yeah. <laughs> Easily. Can you or will you be able to track the way that users interface with the catalog In theory, I could. I'm not... I can't see a personal... Uh, I don't have a personal drive to see how people are interacting with it. 
uh, the captcha, there's a captcha there merely to keep uh, Googlebot from going through and taking all of my hard-won JPEGs and throwing them on the internet. Um, it's not a commercial site, so it's not, and there's, there's no f access fee for it, so there's not quite the impetus um, that a commercial site would have, and I don't have, I'm, I'm not trying to bring people to the house or to get them in the door, so I don't quite have the uh, attendance focus that say that the National Gallery might want to have on you know on how they see who comes to the visitor page who does searches by artist if if somebody if I go to the National Gallery site and I'm searching for Jasper Johns and you have 5,000 other people searching for Jasper Johns it might be time to put on a Jasper Johns show but since everybody's coming to my site for Fred I prefer to nod towards privacy rather than data collection in the background terms of web usage. And we don't fundraise. That's part of our limitation of our private foundation. We don't have any reason to be, we don't have the right to do that. Liz, did you want to ask a question? We, uh, when Fred Fred bequeathed the artworks that were in his possession at the time of his death. He had completed the contract with Center for Creative Photography. He had a box set aside for them. They got correspondence, negatives, and a selection of artworks that were chosen by Fred, and those were segregated. The remainder was rolled into the Charitable Remainder Trust, which is what we are, and we periodically deaccessions things to maintain. We would have to change our five hundred one c three. I don't. Oh. We're just we're just not that setting of that at. We just don't have that personality. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hunt and I hunt alone because I. I <laughs> so it's a it's a personality thing. Even if it, even if we can, I just. Not good at asking. There are three of us: Naomi, myself, and a third one is Amy Jaspers, and we love her dearly. Yeah, we're we're. It's interesting when I I was very frustrated one day and working with Fred on uh, Livia, one of his most famous images, and I I came out of the darkroom just I think steam was coming out of my ears and. And he didn't usually get in my way when I was in those moods. And he sat me down and he said, Naomi, are you listening to me? And, you know, of course, as soon as somebody says that to me, I'm really listening. And he said, you cannot work slow enough. <laughs> and I, There's I, also this I thought, what a wonderful gift. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about, there's always issues of terminology. How do you categorize certain works? And trustees is a tricky word sometimes. Naomi and I have come to the phrase, we're working trustees. And there are places in stature where a trustee is as much a benefactor and an advisor. And we're kind of on that other end. When we, we had an opportunity to build a house and we were owner lackey on site. So that's, we've carried that through onto this project. We're both owner and lackey.
<laughs> do you feel like it supports a more scholarly mission if you don't fundraise you sort of you don't have anybody to whom you have to prove anything you just sort of plug away at the vision you have conceived I would it's definitely would, where I, we I are would, right I, now A, I'm not going to reject assistance I would welcome assistance um, I periodically have sought out conversations with artist endowed foundations and museum staff about phrasing, uh, and I've certainly consulted publications, which are the represent, you know, like the George O'Keefe resume, the key set for Stieglitz. Uh, I've gone to the Noguchi website I like, I, and the National Gallery website are, you know, they were kind of frameworks for me, and I, you know, I. Naomi and I buy resumes because we want to see that breadth of how an artist evolved. And it's just that the print form of it is, you know, what did it take the, the Picasso man 60 years to do the one on Picasso? I just, the advantage of the digital is it, it can be research in motion and have interaction without having the strictures of a deadline and authority. I can show people the working method and they can contribute. Yeah. We have, on occasion. It's how I met Ksenia. <laughs> <laughs> she emailed me. Yeah. That it she was finishing this show, you know, and it's like, can we reproduce this? And we started to dial, and she's starting her website, and we're really working on it. It's, and so she says, I'm going to show a collage, and it's like, did you know that Fred did collage before these late collages? And she said, do you have an example? I send it. It's on her web. You know, it's in her web feature. So we had this wonderful exchange that was totally useful to her. And I just had a blast answering it and thinking up things. And what do I have a capture of? And, you know, even going down and capturing something for her. And we're very open to that. And we hope that that's really what the resume does almost more than not just shining the light on Fred, but opening it up so that people can ask us really any kind of question. We have teenagers email us sometimes for a project in their, you know, art class. Um, and I'm real open to that. All right, I think we'll take one more question and then we'll let people get back to lunch or other. Is the archive. The Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona was Uh, this is whereby you would go to the Resonate site and you would click on the Center for Creative Photography and it would actually show you all their images. I believe off the top of my head they have 104. And he was one of the founding contributors. He was one of the five founding artists for, for, for the, the Center for Photography. Which was Wynne Bullock, Aaron Siskin, Harry Callahan, Frederick Summer, and I got Wynn, who's off. Edward Weston? And Ansel. Oh, and sorry. Yeah. And to also to speak again to the sort of the virtues <coughs> of the digital, when I was researching my show, I was able to email the CCP, and they were able to scan all of 
Fred's correspondence with Max Ernst and send me the PDFs. So there are real virtues in, in the research role. Yeah. And that's a new development. They have not always had that Openness, because um, they were trying to get people to come to Tucson mm-hmm. more and more. Yeah. And and when we when they asked us our opinion, it's like you need to get some housing. It's some also free housing, of, <laughs> so that know, people can come to Tucson. It's also a nice concise file. You know, I know that uh, Amy Rule, who uh, was a Sorry. primary individual there in many roles, you know, she has like. 27 linear feet of correspondence with Ansel, of Ansel Adams, or she, she says it's a whole wall. You know, with Fred, it's like five boxes. And so the volume is, with Fred is of manageable size compared to some other individuals. Well, again, thank you so much for coming. And if you do have further questions, please come on down and talk to us. Or email us. <laughs> or email us. <laughs> This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.